are listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. We're in a series called Your Bible and How to Use It. May God bless you as you listen. All right, you're ready for God's Word? You got your Bibles with you? Well, can you remember the point of last week's message? Before you open your Bible, you must open your heart and mind to the eternal all-knowing, supernatural God who engineered it, right? So let's do that. Let's pray. Eternal God, you are all-knowing. You are everywhere present. You know the thoughts and even the intentions of our hearts and our minds today. And Lord, in some ways that should threaten us because we know that you know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, you know where we fail, where we fall. You know where we're going to fail and fall. But you also know what words are needed in order to lift us up, to redeem, to restore, to reconcile, to bring us back into your very heart. You are an all-knowing, supernatural God, and you have engineered this word for the benefit of your people in all time in every place in this world. And so, Lord, we come to your word today humbly. We come respecting all the different flavors and nuances that the authors bring to it. But we come understanding that this is a word that has been breathed out by you. You didn't dictate it, but you made it happen through the personalities and the influences of the writers to be able to communicate to us the world the intentions, and the knowledge of God. And so, Lord, as we enter into your word right now, we open up our hearts and our minds to you because we know that you and you alone are capable of bringing out meaning and purpose and application for us where maybe before we didn't think it was possible. So help us along in this, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I mentioned that I enjoy picking sermon titles, and um, I think probably every pastor likes to put little twists and turns on the, on the titles that they choose, and last week's title was really obvious. If you remember, your Bible is full of words. I mean, pretty obvious, right? Today, I'm, I'm guessing the sermon title might be a bit controversial for some of you, the title is literally is, not literal, is literally not the best way to read your Bible. Literally is literally not the best way to read your Bible. I know that sounds, uh, some of you may be thinking by that I don't understand what he means, and that's okay, we'll get there, You'll, I'll help you along. But then there might be others who will be thinking our pastor is a heretic and uh, maybe he should read his Bible more literally. That's okay, we'll get to that too, we'll help you along. And that's because most of us, I think, are taught that when we read the Bible, we should read it literally, and that any other reading of the Bible might even compromise the inerrancy of our Bibles. Well, as I'll show you today, that probably couldn't be any further from the truth, and so we'll dig into that. Communication, you have to understand, is a very complex affair, and it is dependent on more than just dictionary definitions. We kind of walked through that last week how meanings of words mean nothing, right, at first. Now, according to Old Testament scholar Dr. John Hilber, 
uh, laboratory testing by cognitive linguists, that's scientists, people who, whose profession it is to study languages and communication and, and how that all works in today in people, uh, have demonstrated that people process literal and figurative possibilities of what they hear and read in parallel, not in series. In other words, in everyday normal human communication, whether it is listening or reading, we don't first assume a literal interpretation by what, about what we take in. Linguists have done the research and have discovered that we take in both literal and figurative at the same time, in parallel, but we then actually default to and pick up on the figurative before the literal. They explain that the human brain is not wired to prefer a literal reading. And we also don't like to communicate with others in a literal method. We prefer to add all kinds of flourishes to our communication using figures of speech and metaphor and simile and hyperbole and personification and colloquialisms and idioms in all kinds of different manners in order to add life and color and meaning to what we say and write. We don't read stuff like we're reading a dictionary. And we usually start, and then start processing it from there. In fact, we get bored with the literal. For instance, when was the last time you read a textbook? Some of you who are students are going, I read textbooks every day. Yeah, and how much do you enjoy it? Yeah, not very well. We don't like the literal. Human beings prefer story over technical literature. Good thing our Bible isn't a textbook, right? Every time you take in any kind of communication, your brain is constantly at the speed of light, maximizing and, op and optimizing the discernible benefit of the phrases that you're taking in, and it highlights, by default, the figures of speech that you take in, and it knows how to interpret it because of the similar life contexts that you have with the author the or the person sharing that information. But sometimes, uh, something you read or hear might be lost in translation because of a figure of speech that you're unfamiliar with. Here's an example of some of that in phrases that you might have to interpret to your grandkids because it comes from a different context that, than they have lived in. And, and that's a polite way of saying that you're getting old, okay? So just so you know. I hear it all the time from my kids. But here's the first one. He's a carbon copy of his father. Have you heard that one or something similar to that phrase before? That's a good 20th century idiom. Now, you youngins in the old days, we used to have log books and credit card transfer machines that had this black sheet of carbon between the original and the blank page. And when you wrote on the surface or you rubbed the carbonized paper across the original, it made a copy on the blank page below. It was quite impressive. Do you remember how we used to use those credit card machines in retail? Did anybody ever work retail when they were younger? Yeah? When we had those credit card machines, what else did we call them? Knuckle busters. Yeah, or ch -ch -ch, right? That's a, a noise you don't hear often, kind of like the internet clicking in 40 years ago. And anyway, but there, that's, that's sort of one of those kind of phrases that's losing a bit of its meaning for the younger generation because they don't have that context. Here's another one. Don't take no wooden nickels. That's a 19th century phrase, meaning don't be scammed or be careful that you don't accept anything at face value. 
They used to have wooden nickels that people used to pass around. This is from a Winchester gun company saying, don't take any wooden nickels. Yeah, another one. Wear your best bib and tucker. That one going back, eh? That's a 17th century phrase. In other words, it means wear your Sunday best, right? Because that phrase, even though it might be a little bit too old for some, some of us, uh, I had to look it up. A bib was a sort of shirt that women wore under a dress or a jacket that looks like a real shirt. You might know it today as a dicky, another word that we probably should get rid of. But a tucker is another one where it's, we all know what that is if you're older, right? I, have, I had a turtleneck dicky. I think I still do somewhere in my closet. A tucker was a special lace piece that women would tuck into their dress, sometimes called pinners or modesty pieces. They're all available in the old Sears Robux wish book back in the day. There's literally a billion of these kinds of phrases and idioms that are out there, and if, if you're of the same era, you get them, but if you're not, you lose the context, and they mean nothing to you. And so you need interpretation, you need to learn the context, you need to learn why it was said and how it was used so that you can get at the real meaning. If you don't know the context of figures of speech that you come across, like these old sayings, someone or something gets lost in translation, like from German to English, you need someone to translate it for you because your brain will need to understand what it's saying and it will search the context of that background. If it doesn't have it, it will then start to pull out the literal words of the meanings. Well, what does bib really mean? Well, in our minds, it means a bib that you wear so you don't drool all over yourself. That's a bib. But that's why your brain will naturally search for the most literal rendering of the words and phrases to try to interpret it if the context is missing for you. So if literal is not our brain's natural default in everyday communication, why would we assume that the writers of Scripture would be any different from us? They're not. They weren't. And that's the point. That's why you can't assume a literal interpretation of the text of Scripture. Sometimes you can, but not always. Just keep that in mind as we go through. Let me give you a for instance from the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Who said that? God, right? And he's talking about Cain killing Abel, right? But can blood literally cry out to us from the ground? No. Why did God say, listen? Listen for the blood crying out from the ground. No, it doesn't literally cry out from the ground. And we don't have a problem understanding that because that story has been a part of our shared cultural experience with the Bible ever since the Bible was translated in English and we could read a Bible for ourselves. What about this other one? Isaiah chapter 40. Turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. Yahweh weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. We read that. And immediately our brains are pulling out of their, of their storehouse, meaning to all the non-literal parts of the scripture, right? And, and you're only conscious of it happening because we're talking about it right now. Otherwise, your brain would be handling all the non-literal parts automatically. 
Isaiah 40 is about how the Israelites are feeling during their, 40, or, uh, during their 70 years of exile in Babylon. And they're feeling hopeless, right? They're feeling hopeless. And so these words from the prophet come across as comfort and a promise of future deliverance by Yahweh. And perhaps you don't know this simply by reading it, but chapter, 14, uh, chapter 40, in fact, most of the prophetic elements of Isaiah's prophecies are written in a form of Hebrew poetry that utilizes parallelisms. They're quite colorful and picturesque in order to draw something emotive out of the reader. And you can always tell whether what you're reading on the, in your Bible is a song or a poem. You'll see kind of staggered text like this rather than the straight narrative text like in a, in a textbook. These verses will be staggered, and it's a good indication if you have a study Bible. You'll, they do a, usually a better job of showing you these different ways of reading and the different types of literature. But a poetic parallelism compares a key word or an idea in the first line and then repeats the key words or ideas in the second line. And sometimes that key word or idea is then repeated over the next several lines. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 40, verse 15. Let's go through it again. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. That's the main premise. They are regarded as dust on the scales. That's parallel number one. He, that is Yahweh, weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. That's the reinforced parallelism. Again, we read that and immediately your brain is pulling out of its storehouse all the meaning it can of the non-literal parts of the scripture. And instantly, the prophet's use of buckets and scales draws us into the meaning that no matter how powerful the nations of the world are, compared to Yahweh, the God of Israel... They are utterly insignificant, like a drop in a bucket, like dust on a scale. We take in these non-literal figures of speech all the time when we read the Bible, and we don't even realize it, but they're meant to be enjoyed for what they are. And it's because it's our usual way of taking in new information when it's being communicated to us. And that's great benefit to you as you study your Bible to acknowledge the variety of literary devices, figures of speech, types of literature that you're reading, and not just reading it literally. Here's another, for instance, John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. You'll be familiar with this one. John 15, 1 to 3. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. We know that this this statement is metaphorical because Jesus is not some kind of viney vegetation, is he? And the Father's job description really isn't that of a gardener. And you are not a branch, literally, that can bear fruit. What's the fruit that a grape branch produces? Grapes. Do you have grapes growing under your armpits today? I think there's a procedure or pills for that if you do. But that's not to be taken literally, but to add emphasis and meaning to the passage, to draw out the emotive for you. But carry this metaphor further into Jesus' ministry time here on earth, and we read in Luke chapter 22, 
verse 17 to 18, says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What's the fruit of the vine this time? Wine. The fruit of the vine we understand here in this context as wine. Funny how you didn't think it was grapes when you read it. You knew what Jesus meant, that he meant wine. What about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 14 to 17? Are you literally supposed to put on a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, readiness shoes, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and a sword of the Spirit? Believe it or not, but I was given a book years ago when I first became a Christian that said that the pieces of armor in in, uh, Ephesians 6 here were actual pieces of armor somewhere in the spiritual realm, and every day you needed to go through the literal motion of putting them on so that you could be protected from the devil. There were people writing this kind of nonsense because they took it literally. And see, all kinds of stuff is out there like that. There are people who presume to take all kinds of stuff from the Bible literally. Can I encourage you, as you study the Bible, to think? Think about what you're reading. Put massive amounts of thought into it. You're meant to think and pay attention, not just to the words on the page and the phrases, but by the way the authors of Scripture write those words. What kind of figures of speech they're using? What kind of literature they're using? Is this poetry that I'm reading or is it historical? Gain an understanding for the meaning of the text based upon the genre of the text. It'll help you glean more meaning and benefit from what you're reading and it'll keep you from error. Now, I hope you see now why Bible students, as Bible students, we can run into trouble if we assume the Bible should always be read literally. Literally, God doesn't drop nations in buckets or weigh islands on ginormous scales. Nor are there literal pieces of armor that we have to dress in every day. Those are figures of speech not to be taken literally, but to add emphasis to the author's intention and meaning and application for us. And for the most part, you get that. But learn to go deeper. Now, nowhere... Does that get more problematic for Christians than when we're reading the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2 and the apocryphal books of Daniel and Revelation? I imagine when you read the creation accounts, most of you read it as a literal, chronological, six, 24-hour day sequence of events in which God created the heavens and the earth, rather than a long, indefinite periods of time. But did you know that the literary genre of Genesis 1 is a form of Hebrew prose known as a chiasmus? I touched briefly on a chiasmus from last, uh, last week. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are written this way. Chiastic writing is a literary technique that is used in narrative prose from the ancients to bring two or more ideas together And then near the end, it circles back to provide a specific emphasis. Specifically, for Genesis 1 and 2, that the Lord God of Israel is the almighty creator and Lord of all. See, the ancient world, the world that the writers lived in, 
Remember, we should always read our Bibles, our Old Testament especially, as if we are reading the mind of an ancient Near Eastern Jew, not a 21st century evangelical Christian in the Western world, but in the context of where they lived and who they lived with and among. But the writers in that day, probably Moses, the nations around them had many gods, Elohim, But the writer of Genesis is making the claim that Yahweh is the Elohim who is above all other Elohim. He is God alone because he alone created the heavens and the earth. He is supreme and he is superior. Now, a lot of creation science groups out there would support that claim. They would get that and and preach that. But they miss the point sometimes on the creation accounts because their primary concern with Genesis 1 and 2 is to defend the literal six 24-hour day sequence against the theory of evolution. Because they think anything less than a literal reading of the days threatens God's godness or something. But should that be the point of studying Genesis 1 and 2? No. The Bible is not a science textbook to be defended. Moses never heard of Darwin or Galileo or Ptolemy or Archimedes. If we were supposed to take it, all the science of the ancient writers literally, then we should probably start to defend more of a flat earth theory because that is easier to defend from our Bibles than the earth as a sphere. But but only if the Bible Bible science is supposed to be taken literally, which would be a big hermeneutical mistake. So what if the point of the creation accounts isn't actually about the days? I mean, should we even be arguing over a literal translation of the Hebrew word for day, yom, when the sixth and seventh days, unlike the first five days, lack the Hebrew definite article? Those who know anything about that will understand. Should we be arguing for a literal 24-hour day when the seventh day, the day that God rested from all his work, is literally not a 24-hour day, but is an indefinite day? In fact, it's still going on. Isn't he still resting from all of his creative work? Should we be trying to defend a literal 24-hour day from the, first, from the word yom when Moses lumped all the days of creation into one day? Genesis 2 verse 4 These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And there's even the definite article in there for those who care about that. So what if the point is what I'm saying is what if the point of the creation accounts isn't really about the sequence or the science of the days? At least it shouldn't be our priority. And what about the apocryphal literature like the book of Revelation? Should we literally interpret the future holy city, the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 as a place decorated with precious gems and a street of pure gold, clear as crystal? I know we flower up our songs with all those kinds of word pictures, but is it literally going to be like that? How much of John's revelation can we take literally and how much of it is metaphor or others? Which parts? Will the final days really involve seven candlesticks, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls? When you read the bulk of Christian literature out there these days, on the end times, on Revelation more specifically, 
you can't help but see that Christians are obsessed with timelines. And we spend so much time studying the timelines that I think we actually neglect the rest of the Bible that isn't apocalyptic literature and timelines. Like I said last week, when was the last time you read Leviticus or Numbers or Lamentations? The reason is, is because unlike Revelation and Daniel, they don't have timelines in them, and they bore us. So like the prose of the creation account, what if the point of the apocalyptic literature of Daniel and Revelation is not to get obsessed over the days or the soon or the timelines of Revelation, but to rather get us obsessed about the soon arrival of the dreadful day of the Lord and to be prepared for it. Now, I imagine that some of you may have missed a lot of what I said in there about literalism because you're more worried that your pastor isn't a six-day literal creationist or maybe you're worried that I don't hold to your particular end times timeline. I actually never said what I was, did I, in all of that? But I study, and I know all the theories that are out there pretty well, and I try to stay teachable, and I try to stay humble, and I try to stay flexible in my thinking on these things. But regardless of my views, stop worrying about the days and the timelines. Instead, enjoy every part of your Bible, and be careful to notice what parts to take literally and what parts are figurative and then interpret it based on that. Oh, and and don't just default to what some famous author or Bible teacher says about the days and the timelines. Please appreciate that genuine Bible scholars debate the days and the timelines all the time, and they can't agree. So don't be dogmatic about your view. Instead, be humble and do the work. Study yourself, show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, who's able to rightly interpret the word of God. So what do we learn today? Well, hopefully you learn to appreciate that your Bible is a work of art. It's not just a historical narrative to be read through in a year, although that's a good discipline to pick up. The writers of Scripture employed a variety of writing styles to communicate the point of what they were writing about, even the historical stuff. And hopefully, you've also learned that you can't just read your Bible literally, but you have to think as you read. Thinking is good. Questioning is good. Doubts are good. I've learned my best stuff in doubting. It pushes you to dig deeper than the status quo of the answers you've heard so far that are out there in all the popular books and pulpits. Because if you take time to read your Bible, and if you take everything literally, you're going to literally miss risking the point. Friends, you are able to study your Bible for yourself. You can do this. Just think. That's all. And hopefully you've learned today as I walk through some of these scriptures that, as, as, that I did that your God is so great that there is none like him in all the cosmos. From Genesis to Revelation, the testimony of your Bible is that Yahweh is Lord of all. No matter how powerful the nations of the world are, no matter how powerful the gods of this world are, no matter how difficult the tribulations of the days that will be coming will be, 
Compared to Yahweh, the creator God of the heavens and the earth, they are utterly insignificant. They are like a drop in the bucket and like dust on a scale. So now is the time to read your Bible anew. Now is the time to put your trust in the God of the Bible as your Savior and Lord. And the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus alone, the one God sent and had plans to send from the beginning, only he can deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He alone can make you a new creation and guarantee you the eternal life and your eternal home in glory when you're done on this planet. And so put your faith in him. And to do that, if you want to do that today for the first time, I encourage you to come to this pew over here after the service is done. And we'd be glad to walk you into that decision. Online, if you're online studying with us in this, then go to our website, go to a contact page, find our email or phone number there and give us a call. We'd be happy to walk you through it all. And also, take a Bible home with you. Let's pray. Lord, I know because of time in my own life, mornings being as rushed as they are, Sometimes I don't have time to dig deep, as deep as I'd like to. And sometimes when I get started digging deep, I have to stop because time doesn't permit it. I have to go and do other tasks in the day. And it squelches thinking. It squelches my study of your word. And I'm sure my brothers and sisters here today all feel the same pressures we want to know your words so much more than we do. Help us, Lord, to not take it for granted. Help us not to get obsessed over passages that are trendy or, um, or urgent sounding. But help us to take the whole counsel of God into consideration. And help us to be students of the whole Bible. Because there's so much more that we could learn more than we'll ever learn in one lifetime. But Lord, there is a great blessing that comes to those who give the time and the effort to studying their scriptures. And Lord, we pray that as these days go by this week, that you would help us to be more diligent in giving more time to the study of your word so that we can grow and come to know you much more deeply. Lord, bless my sisters and brothers here today with a profound sense of the importance of the Word of God because in it we discover from front to back that the testimony of our Bibles is that you, Lord, are Lord of all. From creation to recreation, no matter how powerful the nations of the world are, no matter how powerful the gods of this world are, no matter how difficult the tribulation of the days ahead of us will be, compared to you, Lord, our creator God, all those other things are utterly insignificant. They are nothing compared to you. And so we trust you, and we look forward to your word reinforcing that trust for us so that, Lord, we can walk in you, walk in your ways better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.